5 is where we'll center tonight. I've got enough notes to go for about three hours. Now, I understand the Razorbacks have a big game with Duke University in a little while. And so, even though I've got three hours of notes, if, if, if there's enough money, I can be bribed to cut it short. My, my sermons are usually like a choo-choo train. I can just unhook from one of those boxcars and just hook back onto it the next time. So, pool the, pool the money and uh, depend on how much money we get in, that will depend on when our quitting time is for the message tonight. I just want you to know it's a joy to pastor a church full of smart Alex. <laughs> you don't watch sports anyway? I don't either, but they usually eat when, before the game, and so I'm always act like I like, I'm looking forward to the game. I'm just looking for the chili hot dog and then fooey on the game. <laughs> you know, probably everybody in here, at least a good portion of you have read through the Bible. A good number of you have read through it a number of times. And you've heard sermons for years, and you wonder, have I heard everything there is to hear? Is it really... Am I going to hear anything new? Or is this really going to be helpful to me? Is it worth my time to take time out of my week to come to a Wednesday night service? Some people think not. But I believe that if you're like me, there's things that I actually have already learned and I know. But I'm not doing it. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'm not there. And so it's kind of like a knife, you know, you, you've got a sharp knife and you cut with it and it eventually gets dull. And it's a good knife, but it just gets dull. And you've got to pull out the wet rock and wet that thing down where it's got a nice edge on it again. Maybe hit that razor strop a few times. You know, you know, we know what a razor strop is, right, Brother Lloyd? We've had them used on us. <laughs> and you get that edge nice and sharp and you can go back and meat or whatever you're slicing, the vegetables, and it just works so much better. You know, one of the reasons why we need to hear the Word of God often is because it is like a knife, or like a whetstone, I should say, to us who are like a knife, and it sharpens us and makes us able to be able to be better servants for the Lord. Now, Matthew chapter number 5, we're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins with a Several verses of Beatitudes, blessed are. And so we're in the third one tonight. And so we'll read verse 5 just to get our bearing right, and then we'll talk about it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, blessed, joyful, happy, pleased, contented are they, the meek, for they are the ones that will inherit the earth. And so with that thought in mind from Scripture, let's ask the Lord to bless us tonight and study a little bit. Father, I pray that you'd bless us. Lord, none of us are as sharp as we ought to be. None of us are as useful in your service as we could be. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd sharpen us tonight. Use the whetstone of your word just to make us more usable, a better servant for thee. We pray that you'd do that. May the Holy Spirit of God 
guide us in the things that we say and the things that we hear and the things that we learn. I pray that you'd bless us in an unusual way in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> My parents <coughs> were intent at times on putting me in my place. When I was a little, especially when I was a little guy and even up as a teenager, there'd be times when I'd be acting in a way I shouldn't have been or talking in a way I shouldn't have been. And one of my parents, and especially I remember my dad said, son, you're getting a little too big for your britches. You heard it. And he'd say, and I'm fixing to size you down a couple of notches and suddenly wisdom returned to my soul reason began to work in my heart and with my own choice and self-interest and self-preservation I sized myself down about six sizes just to be sure and God is saying in, these, in this verse verse number five to be fit for the kingdom of God don't get too big for your britches. Be meek. Well, <laughs> here's what one definition of this phrase, too big for your britches, means. That's what we're going to title this tonight because I, I just wanted it to be something that would uh, look good on the Internet. People would download it and listen to it. So too big for your britches is an idiomatic expression used to convey that someone is acting in the way that exceeds their actual status abilities, or importance. It suggests that the person is behaving arrogantly, overconfidently, or presumptuously beyond their current position or capabilities. The phrase implies that the individual's attitude or actions are disproportionate to the actual level of authority, experience, or maturity. And essentially, it's a gentle or sometimes teasing way of telling someone to be more humble and not let their ego overshadow their true place or abilities. I kind of like that. And it goes along hand in hand with what we're going to be studying out of this beatitude. In verse number five, it says, Blessed are the meek. The beatitudes determine our fitness for the kingdom of God. We have a form of the kingdom of God that we are in. Now the, the coming kingdom that Jesus will institute at his second coming will be a real physical kingdom and we will live in it and we will abide by these statutes that he has put in the Sermon on the Mount. But right now, we live in his kingdom, in a spiritual kingdom, and we're surrendered to him, or ought to be, as believers, and we're determined whether we're fit for that kingdom or not. And that doesn't mean whether you're saved or not. It doesn't mean you have to be, um, doesn't mean that you have to act in a certain way to be saved, and we understand that, don't we? But what it does mean is that if you're fitted to the kingdom, you will have a certain action and attitude about you. Otherwise, it's kind of like putting a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> Doesn't work very good, does it? <laughs> and so, if, as believers, to fit into this kingdom, 
in a spiritual way today if we adhere to and respond to his instructions about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, we will have a character about us that makes us well fitted for his kingdom. We want to fit in. Now some people want to fit in with the world, but we ought to want to fit in with Christ's kingdom. And so this first Beatitude that we went through in verse Number three, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we learn from that 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 our first step is realizing our own spiritual bankruptcy. When we get saved, we know we've got nothing to offer him. He's got everything to offer us. We have nothing. We're spiritually bankrupt. And as believers, even though we're saved, we still don't have anything of value that he didn't give us. And so we realize and recognize our our spiritual bankruptcy. And then the second beatitude uh, involves remorse or mourning over the sinful nature that we have and how we want to serve him. As the apostle Paul said, man, he said, I I want to do right. I want to do right. I want to do right. I intend to do right. And then I, I, I fool around and do exactly the wrong thing. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And so we find ourselves in that same situation in the second beatitude, understanding our spiritual inadequacies and sinfulness. The third beatitude is even more difficult because it has to do with the relationships with others. And this is where it won't be easy letting God work in our lives to knock off those, those rough edges so that we'll be a round peg in a round hole. But it is possible through yielding to the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible does say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So we can't say, well, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I just can't get up on Sunday morning and go to church. I just can't come on Wednesday night and go to church. I just can't bring myself to pray. I just can't bring myself to read the Bible. I just can't bring myself to be nice. <laughs> no, it's not that we can't. It's, not, it's just that we're not willing to yield to the Holy Spirit and let Him mold us into what He wants us to be. Let's notice the examination of meekness in the first place let's just define what it's not and then we'll get on to what it is a little bit later but we've got to get clear in our mind what meekness is not first of all it's not weakness timidity or cowardice it's not effeminacy men it's not being someone who is a floor mat it's not being someone who is in cahoots with the world and overlooking sin It's not spiritual flabbiness or being an introvert or a sissy. It's not being wishy-washy and lack of conviction. It's not that. On the contrary, the word has the opposite meaning. Meekness is not vindictive. It's not looking to get even. It does not retaliate. Meekness is not selfish. It doesn't emphasize its rights. Boy, we could preach America a lesson on that tonight, couldn't we? Everybody's saying, I've got my rights. No, you've got the right to go to hell, and that's about all. And if everybody got what they had coming to them, they'd be sad about it, really sad. 
We don't emphasize our rights when we are being meek. We don't exalt ourselves. We don't act in an unkind and cruel manner. It's not being a henpecked husband nor a browbeaten wife. It's not being a yes man on the job. Meekness doesn't mean having a passive acceptance of every sinful practice. Now, I don't care how many times I try to change the meaning of the rainbow, I ain't going along with it. I can be, I can be meek and refuse to acknowledge that homosexuality is as pervasive as it may be and all the different isms and schisms and, and perversions that's out there today. Uh, I'll be kind to them. I'll try to win them to the Lord, but I'm not going to agree with them. And you say, what if, what if you had a child that turned out to be gay? They were another good word, didn't they? And well, I'd still love them. God, God loved the world, and so I guess I could love them, but it doesn't mean I'm going to give them a pat on the back and say, well, that's all right. You're just born that way, I guess. No, you just decided to sin that way is what it is. So what is meekness? It's difficult to define it with just one word. I think gentleness would come close, but like a rainbow with many colors, the word meekness, I think, would be humble, like a soothing, cool breeze in the summertime. Meekness would be like a healing prescription for your sickness that makes you get well again. Um, it means not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I, as much as we want to think we're important, it doesn't behoove us to act like it or to even have the attitude that we are really important. That's why in 1 Corinthians, that's why the church at Corinth had so many problems because everybody thought they were the most important one. Everybody wanted to say, well, I'm following this guy, so I'm in the right. And this one said, well, I'm following this guy. And some are so spiritual, said, well, I'm, I'm just following Jesus, man. <laughs> They're just uh, a bunch of self-important people, and all they did was cause problems, and Paul had a big problem trying to straighten them out over it. Not being overly impressed with one's self-importance, but gentle, Humble, lowly, willing to be kind, tender-hearted. What about that? Doesn't the scripture say that we ought to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another? Instead of holding a grudge, saying, you don't know what he did to me. Well, it doesn't matter. That doesn't change what the word of God says. You don't have, if somebody steals your billfold, you don't have to turn your back on them and let them have a second chance at it. But we are to be forgiving. In fact, Wycliffe phrased Matthew 5, 5 this way. He said, blessed be the mild men. Now you can be firm and you can be manly and you can be masculine men and you can still be gentle and humble. I heard it said this way when I was in Bible college. They use this definition a lot. Power under control. Power under control. You know, God could squash me like a bug. He's got the power to do it. But he's got the gentleness and the kindness and the long-suffering that he allows me to go on in this life. And I'm very grateful for that. 
So being mild, meekness is not only the opposite of pride, but of stubbornness, fierceness, anger. Well, we live in an angry world today. I mean, everybody's marching. I mean, they're going on tonight. I saw it. Just I didn't see but about five minutes of news today, but I, they were emphasizing, man, uh, with the ceasefire in Israel, and it's about to resume. The war is about to time in again. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's marches going on, not just across America, but all around the world in support of Hamas. How wicked, how ignorant can that be? The world is full of anger, and they don't even know why they're angry. Most of them don't have a clue what Hamas is all about. But yet they're, they're out there marching, and they're mad. They even beat up. They'll find a Jew here in yonder to beat up every once in a while. But according to many of them, it's the Jew's fault that he got beat up. It's the Jew's fault that they got massacred over there October the 7th because they weren't what they should be, so they just decided to kill them. Well, that's the kind of world we live in. People are angry. I mean... If you think they're not angry, I bet you could ask Connor. I bet he sees a lot of this uh, uh, out on the road, <laughs> road rage. People are angry. People that normally wouldn't do anything face-to-face with you, but on the road, man, they get brave. And uh, the, the keyboard warriors on the Internet, man, they're brave. They get on there and they'll tell everybody off, man, as they click through it. And uh, <laughs> if you're face-to-face with them uh, and threaten to punch them in the nose, they might cry and run. You know, but people are angry. Meekness is not fierceness and anger. And if we're one of God's children and we're being fitted for the kingdom, we can't go around being angry at people and expect to be a round peg in a round hole. And so this is why he's saying that. People are wanting to get even. I mean, why, so many people get divorced and their kids end up suffering the consequences and the mother don't want the father to see the kids and the father don't want the mother and, and the back and forth and yelling at each other and even in homes where they're still together, a lot of anger and, and no meekness. Nobody's willing to give in. Pride. But Romans twelve nineteen says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. And when we realize that God's keeping the score, I don't have to try to get even with people. In fact, not only is it dumb, it's dangerous, and it's just plain unchristian to try to go around trying to get even with people. I'm glad Jesus didn't try to get even with us and he went to the cross instead. The person who is constantly ruffled and shaken and offended by everything that somebody says. You know what happens to those kind of people? The people that are upset and easily offended, they're letting everybody around them control their life. If you're easily offended, you're letting everybody else, you're going to be in constant turmoil because they're in control, not you. If I decide I'm not going to be ruffled, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be angry and vengeful, then I'm saying you're not going to control me. I don't have to get mad. I don't have to get even. I can be kind and I can be gentle and you can't do anything to stop me. (laughs) About Jesus, it was said in 1 Peter 2.23, who, when he was reviled, about Jesus when they were taking him to the cross, it says, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that, Judgeth righteously. 
He just turned it over to the Lord, turned it over to God, turned it over to the Father. When we get to where we can just say, well, you know, God's in control of this. I don't have to control the outcome of every little thing that happens. Now, a long time ago, when I first started pastoring, I thought, man, I've got to get my arm, I've got to get my hands around everybody's neck and choke them till they do right. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. I'm going to preach the word of God. I've said this before, and I, I still mean it. I am not a spiritual policeman. I'm not going to come to your house, a church member's house, and tell you what you've got to do. That's your house. I'll preach from the pulpit what the Word of God says, and then what you do with it is between you and the Holy Spirit. But I don't, it's not my job to come and force people to do right. I wish people would do right. I wish I would do right. I have more control over me than I do over you, I'll tell you that. And I don't do a real good job of controlling me. So how good can I do controlling somebody else? Power under control. I think that's what the meek man is. It's kind of like, you know, in the circus. Do they still have circuses? Does anybody know they still have circuses? I hadn't seen one in years, but circus used to be a big deal uh, back in the old days. <laughs> and uh, they'd bring the... The, the big top into town and they'd have, uh, they'd have all the zoo animals with them and, and trapeze uh, acts and, and the bearded woman and well now those things don't draw anybody because everybody looks that way anyhow now. <laughs> I mean, uh, just, just remember this. Never compliment a woman's mustache no matter how epic it is. <laughs> but they used to have bearded ladies and all kinds of weird stuff at the circus. But one of the things that that always impressed most little kids was seeing those big elephants. I mean, those, those full-grown elephants, I mean, they're huge. One of them take up most of this auditorium. Big old feet that big around. I mean, they could just step on a human being and would see the, the tamer lay down on the ground and let that elephant put his foot right down with inch above his head on the ground. That elephant could have went <laughs> and crushed his skull, but the elephant was trained. Now, who do you think is more powerful, the elephant or that man? Of course, the elephant weighs tons, and that man is just a little scrawny bug on the ground. But that elephant had the power, but it was under control. Same way with the lions and the other dangerous animals. And you and I, as human beings, are pretty dangerous. And we can be powerful. As it says in, in, in James... There's a lot of power in the tongue. And to bring the tongue under control, which is just a little member, the Bible says, yet we're supposed to bring our whole body under control of Christ. And so when we bring this dangerous body of ours into subjection under the Lord, it's power under control. It doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean we couldn't punch you in the nose if we wanted to. It doesn't mean that we would be walked on like a doormat if you would want to do that. What it does mean is we got power under control and we don't have to do that. We can suffer wrong and still survive and be godly about it. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 32, listen to this one. He, <clears throat> he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he that ruleth his own spirit than he that taketh a city the man, the woman that can't rule their own spirit 
they can rage and they can cuss and they can bang the walls and knock holes in the walls and kick doors down, but they're not powerful. Not near as powerful as the one that can control his own spirit. I used to tell guys that any, any man that hit a woman, if he thinks he's somebody, let's see how tough he is. Let him go out in the front yard and slug an oak tree as hard as he can. Let's see how tough he is. <laughs> no man can lead others until he has mastered himself. And there's a lot of a lot of preachers and Christian leaders that need to learn that. Now I'm going to call not a time out, but just a little aside. There are YouTube videos and documentaries that are going around right now that's attacking the independent fundamental Baptist people. And I, I'm not going to say movement because I don't want to be in a movement. I'm an independent Baptist because I'm independent. I don't belong to a movement. I don't belong to a denomination. I don't belong to some group where I'm swept away with every wind of doctrine that they think I ought to believe. I'm not like all the other independent Baptists. That's why I'm independent. Our church is independent. We don't belong to a place that has a headquarters anywhere in the United States or any place else in the world. Independent Baptist means that this church is independent. Nobody tells us what to do but the Lord Jesus Christ. Our church is autonomous and we have no ruler except Christ. No denominational headquarters. Nobody tells us how we've got to do things. But there are documentaries that are going around trying to lump all of us together who call themselves independent Baptists and claiming that child abuse, sexual abuse, all kinds of perversion is rampant in independent Baptist churches. Well, it's not true in the first place that it's rampant in the sense that it's in most churches. I know hundreds of good independent Baptist churches and I don't know them all, but I would guess that there's probably thousands of independent Baptist churches that live for God, they go by the Bible, they are morally pure, and they do follow the Scripture, and they don't go in perverted directions or cover up for per perverts. And we have never done that here. We, <clears throat> we had, <clears throat> excuse me, the reason I'm saying this is because... <clears throat> We as a church need to be self-controlled under Christ and not controlled by some movement or denomination. And I think the investigators who have put together some of these documentaries, they paint with a wide brush. But I'm here to tell you that is there some perversion that goes on in independent Baptist churches? Yeah. There's people in jail because of, they've done bad stuff. But can I just tell you that there's people in Catholic churches that have done the same thing? Doesn't make it right. Doesn't excuse independent Baptists who have done that. But there's people in Methodist churches, Pentecostal churches. Anybody remember Jimmy Swaggart? <laughs> Perversion, immorality, dishonesty, Deception and manipulation happens because people are a fallen race. And it doesn't just happen in one 
church or one group of churches or in something that's called the independent Baptist movement. Now, there may be an independent Baptist movement that somebody else is part of, but I'm not. I'm independent. Our church is independent. Nobody calls the shots for us except the Lord. And so all of that was free. That didn't cost you anything. Now, time back in. It was the lack of self-control that ruined Alexander the Great. In a drunken rage, he hurled a spear at his very best friend and killed him. I wonder how he felt when he sobered up. Self-control. I've seen Christians out of control. A church... It didn't happen when we were in this church. I heard about it later after we had left the church, but a church we had been in at one time, they got a taste of preacher blood. And boy, they went, after, they went through one preacher, another preacher, another preacher, and one of the preachers they had, uh, they were trying to run him off. They were holding back their tithes so he, they could starve him out. <laughs> and he, he just stayed and preached. And he was preaching one night and they decided, well, he's not going to quit because of the money. We've got to run him off for some other reason. And they, man, they, some of them started standing up and trying to shout him down while he was preaching. And one of them said, if you don't get out of the pulpit, we can call an ambulance and have you dragged out, carried out. I'm thinking, Is this really a Christian place? <laughs> Is that the way Christians act? I would say that's kind of a square peg in a round hole. I'm saying that if things like that happens, one of these days, it might not happen immediately, but one of these days, God's going to take them down a size or two because they're too big for their britches. And Christians, individual Christians, can get too big for their britches. We have to master ourselves. Well, what about some examples of meekness in the Bible? Let's look at a couple of them. Meekness is demonstrated when there's conflict over possessions. I mean, I bet JT's seen this, maybe more than the rest of us. Uh, he won't tell us about it, but I bet he knows some stories where people have died, and boy, as soon as they're dead, the uh, relatives rush in to try to grab the inheritance if it's not spelled out and will the way that they want it, and they rush in, and everybody's at each other's throats, and they get mad over possessions, and they go away, some of them hating each other forever because they didn't get what they wanted about in the material possessions. I've seen it happen. In Genesis 13, verse number 7, it says, And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the then in the land, and Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife. Look at this. Abram said, let there be no strife. I pray thee between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Oh, wouldn't it be good if Baptists felt that way? <laughs> We're brethren. <laughs> let there be no strife. We're brethren. Wouldn't it be good if families were that way? He said, we be brethren. Verse 9, is not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if thou depart to the right, then I'll go to the left. Abraham, in humility of mind, in his gentle and meek spirit, knew that God would take care of him. And he didn't have to raise himself up. He had the authority to claim whatever he wanted. God gave that land to him. It still belongs to the Jews today, by the way. Uh, he hadn't withdrawn the title deed. And Abraham 
yielded to Lot's needs. He said, you know, if, if you want that over there, you can have it. I'll go over here. Or if you want that over here, I'll go over there. Abraham was a powerful man. He had, he had lots of money and he had all the authority. Lot was the nephew. But Abraham said, you know, I don't have to be a jerk. I don't have to be rude and mean and exercise my rights. I'm going to give old Lot, I'm going to give old Lot his choice. Wouldn't it be good if we, as subjects of Christ's kingdom, wanting to fit into the kingdom, be fitted for the kingdom if we were willing to forego our rights and suffer ourselves to be defrauded, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Well, in Romans 12, 10, it says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. That means I don't have to be big number one. I don't have to have my way. I don't have to get what I think I ought to have. I can let somebody else have what they want. Greed destroys meekness and distorts common sense. Other, I don't know people that, I thought they were pretty smart until I saw them get all greedy and then they just went haywire, crazy. There's a, a construction group that, were, that was working in Pompeii and laying the foundation for a, for a building and they found the the corpse, the mummified corpse, the encapsulated corpse of a woman who had tried to escape the, the uh, volcanic eruption and all of that, that stuff that was spewed into the air just come raining down and there were people caught in mid-air running and they were just encapsulated that way. And this, this woman was encapsulated in a rain of hot ashes and she still had a bunch of jewels clutched in her hands. She was running from the volcano... <laughs> But she had those jewels. Boy, that tells a story, doesn't it? A long time ago, she got greedy, and that's what she had on her mind. I mean, she was about to perish, but she didn't want to turn loose there. You, you heard the story about the certain monkeys in the jungle that, that the natives learned to put nuts in a hollow tree that had a small hole in it, and just a knot hole big enough that the monkey could get his hand in, but when he got the nuts in his hand, in his fist, he couldn't pull it back out. And he was so greedy, those monkeys were so greedy, once they got those nuts in their hands, even though they saw the natives coming to kill them, they would not turn those nuts loose. And the natives would come and kill them and cook them and eat them. A lot of people are kind of like that. Greed destroys good sense and meekness. It turns people who would ordinarily be sensible people into heathen. Jim Elliot, the missionary who was martyred for his faith, he understood this and, and he wrote this in his journal. A person is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Wow. Meekness is demonstrated when the call of God is challenged. Uh, Moses, Moses was the man of God. He led the people out of e Egypt. And as he leads them out, you know, they're going along for a pretty good while. And then Moses, and, uh, or uh, rather uh, Aaron and, and his sister, Miriam, uh, they decide, well, you know, Moses, man, he's, 
He's trying to be the big shot. You know, he's trying to lead us. Well, God called him, right, at the burning bush. God's the one that called him. <laughs> but Miriam and, and Aaron said, you know, you don't, you're not going to get to make all the decisions. We're just as important as you are. And we're, we're in this together, and we're going we're gonna to be leaders too. Well, Moses could have said, now look, <laughs> boys and girls, God called me, not you. But he didn't. He just, he let them have enough slack in the rope that they hung themselves. And when he backed off and just let them say what they wanted to say, it says in Numbers 12, 2 and 3, it says this, And, and they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. <laughs> and the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Well, God heard it. And what happened? He gave leprosy to Miriam. She said, oh, wow, I didn't know I was in for this. Moses goes, well, I told you so. <laughs> you know what she did? She and Aaron began to plead. Moses, would, would you pray for us? We, we're afraid we're in trouble. Moses asked God to cure her leprosy and everything was straightened out. Moses was challenged about his calling. His siblings challenged him and he let God take care of it. All we're saying is to be fitted for God's kingdom. He doesn't want us challenging each other and, and warring with one another and trying to usurp authority over each other. Uh, he wants us to be fitted for his kingdom. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. You've read the story. It covers a lot of different scriptures. We won't have time to read it all, but when David was anointed king of Israel, when he was just a boy, Jonathan was his best friend. And Jonathan knew that God had anointed David would be the next king. Jonathan was next in line, humanly speaking, <laughs> because he was Saul's son. And when Saul died, Jonathan, humanly speaking, should have been the next king. But God had already anointed David. And Jonathan, the last time Jonathan and David saw each other, they were tremendous friends. And the last time Jonathan, who could have claimed the throne for himself, he said this to David. He said, Thou shalt be king over Israel. I shall be next unto thee. He said, God called you to be the king. I'd just like to be there with you, help you out, but you're the king. Now you got killed and it never came to pass. And then we, we talked about this one not too long ago in 2 Samuel when David uh, David ran for his life out of Jerusalem when his own son rebelled against him and tried to steal the throne from him. And Shimei was running alongside of the hill and cursing David and throwing rocks at him. And just, I mean, he was just having a mad spell, just belly aching and griping and cursing and throwing rocks. And one of David's bodyguards said, King, you let me, I'll go take his head off. The king said, No, just settle down. It's okay. Maybe the Lord's having him do that. We'll let the Lord take care of it. 
And David didn't get all bent out of shape. He just kept on going. Shimei walked away without being executed, which could have happened right there. And Maybe you and I would have killed him. But David decided he'd just let the Lord take, all, take care of all of it. I guess we could say the best example of all of these was Jesus at the cross of Calvary. All the cruelty that was heaped upon Jesus. The sinless one who left all the glories of heaven and came to earth, dwelt in a human body that had the same hunger and thirst and pain that you and I can experience, all without sin, never did anything wrong, yet he was falsely accused, falsely tried in a kangaroo court and brought to the hill called Calvary and was crucified there. In 1 Peter chapter 2 it says, For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Well, what steps was there? It says, Who did no sin, did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Oh, man. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I can't believe it. I mean, it's a good thing you and I are not God. I mean, I'd squash them, stomp them like a bug. You bunch of fools, I created you, and here you are trying to crucify me. Burn up and just send a flame out of heaven to scald them like a bunch of uh, pigs going to the slaughterhouse. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. And he said we ought to follow, we ought to follow his example. What is a yoke anyway? A Sunday school teacher asked a child, what is a yoke? And one of the kids said, uh, something they put around the neck of animals. Now I remember when I, when I was growing up, I used to see a lot of yokes back then. Uh, those old, every little farm had a cow or maybe a few goats, maybe a, a mule or two, and they'd, had, they'd take, usually take an old forked stick. It was like a limb they cut off of a tree and it shaped like a Y. And they'd put it around their neck and then tie wire from one side to the other under their chin where they couldn't get that yoke off. And it had, a, I think it had one pointed up and two pointed down or vice versa. And so when the old cow would try to put her head through the fence, the yoke wouldn't let her get through it. And so she'd be more likely to stay inside the fence. Well, Jesus said, uh, take my yoke upon me. And the Sunday school teacher said, what is a yoke? And the little boy said, well, it's a, something they put on the neck of animals. And he said, well, then what is God's yoke? And then a four-year-old raised his hand and said, it's God putting his arm around our neck. Maybe that's a pretty good description. I don't know. Meekness. It takes a a pretty strong individual to be meek. Anybody can fly off the handle. Anybody can be mean. Anybody can mistreat others. It takes somebody strong to be mistreated themselves and still be kind and gentle. 1 Corinthians 4.13 says, 
of Paul being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. 2 Timothy 4.16 At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Paul said, man, they ran out on me. They ran out on me. Left me alone. Faced the music all by myself. He said, hope God forgives them. I wish the best for them. I take somebody big. Acts 7.60 When Stephen was stoned for his faith in Christ it says and he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice Lord lay not this sin to their charge and when he had said this he fell asleep. Well I think he was following the example of Jesus wasn't he? It takes a big person. It takes somebody mature. It takes somebody who is truly meek and humble, gentle, compassionate. Do you understand that Hamas and most of the Arab world, in fact, think that compassion and conscience is a sign of weakness and effeminacy? That's what they think. I think you shouldn't even have a conscience. It shouldn't bother you to go into a village and just lop off the heads of a bunch of babies and their parents, shoot them down like animals. They think if you're not able to do that, you're not a real man. And their culture teaches them that. And that's why Allah is not Jehovah. When, they, when somebody says, well, we all worship the same God, no, we don't. They worship a demon. What they did on October the 7th I believe it's probably demon possession. How could anybody with a human heart even do such a thing? Meekness is the capacity to take hurt and not get even again. Joseph, I'll end with this one. When Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt, went to prison, falsely accused, and yet when he became vice president of Egypt, prime minister of the land, and he was in, virtually in control of everything, he might as well have been the king. Because the king had turned pretty much everything over to him. When his brothers came down begging for food and they didn't recognize him because he was dressed like an Egyptian and spoke the Egyptian language and they didn't know him. And when he revealed himself to them, they were afraid and they thought, oh no, we remember what we did to him. He's going to kill us now. Joseph displayed this meekness, this characteristic that is one of Christ's. Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. 
and he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. He said, <clears throat> you, you might have meant it for bad, but God was in control and God meant it for good. You see, God's in control whether we realize it or not. He's in the background moving the pieces around. And when we think we have to take the control out of God's hands and we've got to control it ourselves, we've got to get even ourselves, we've got to, be, we've got to put people in their place ourselves, then we're not being meek. And to fit into God's kingdom, meekness requires that we submit ourselves to the will of God and say, Lord, <coughs> help me to endure <coughs> hardships. Help me to endure trials. And when I'm mistreated and, and, <coughs> and I'm maligned, falsely accused, help me, Lord, not to revile against them, but to be more like Jesus. That's what it means to be meek. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd bless us tonight. Help us to learn meekness. And that it's not weakness. It's not effeminacy. It's not being someone who is just being run over. It's allowing you to take control of our lives and being able to respond in a way that Jesus would. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us. Fill us with your spirit. Use us, Lord, in your service. Help us to fit into your kingdom like a round peg in a round hole. Help us not to get too big for our britches.